Well, in 2013, a Christian rapper by the name of Shai Lin released a song entitled False Teachers. The two S's in that title were dollar signs. After explaining the dangers of the prosperity gospel and how it severely distorts the gospel, he lists 12 teachers who, according to scripture, are false teachers. Some screamed and and said that what he was doing just wasn't what Jesus would do. Some of the family members of those who were named in the song tried to defend their loved ones. And others just said it wasn't very nice. But Shai, who planted a church in Philadelphia, served as a pastor for many years, and as a gifted teacher, said that the Bible is his guidebook for calling out false teachers. Is it? In 1 Timothy 1, Paul names names. He says this, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, That by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Name names. He does the same thing in 2 Timothy 2. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So we see in scripture that naming names, calling out false teachers, is an acceptable thing to do. Why did Paul do this? Because to Paul, the local church mattered. Protecting the body of believers, protecting the family matters. And it still matters. Each week when we preach or when we teach or when we sing, we we are in effect fencing around the church to protect from false doctrine from seeping in. This morning, as we go through these verses in Jude... I'm going to try to make a case that false teaching is dangerous and that God's judgment is certain for those who abuse the church. Now, if you've been here for the previous four sermons, none of this will shock you. Jude is is harsh. Jude is tough. The language here is not friendly. This this language that Jude uses in, in many places would seem kind of mean. But he's fighting against a danger that he saw 2,000 years ago coming into the church that still today is a danger for us as well. This idea of false teaching, false doctrine, doctrine that goes against the truth of Scripture, coming into the local church is destructive. Jude saw it. We see it. And this is why we study this book. And this tone of this sermon won't be much different from the rest because the whole book of Jude deals with false teaching. What do we do? And what continues to amaze me as I study this and as I read through this book is that it's almost 2,000 years old. Can you name me one thing that is 500 years old that still has day-to-day application for you? 1,000? 1,500? 
No, we read a book that's 2,000 years old, a letter that was written to Christians in a different continent, a different part of the world, and we read it and we say, wow, this matters for me. And so my hope today is that you see that as well. And you say, well, wait a minute, we're not dealing with some of the stuff that Jude dealt with, no. But we are inviting false teachers, or we have the possibility of inviting false teachers into our homes through our television, through the internet, through books. We, we invite false teachers to walk with us daily through podcasts on our phones. The danger is there. It's present. And it is ready to pounce on each and every one of us. And Jude says, watch out. Because the church matters. And this is the first thing that we see uh, is that false teaching is dangerous. And this is from verses 11 through 13. Now, this may seem like the most obvious thing I, I could ever say. No one here would ever say, well, no, false teaching isn't really that bad. Of course, we would all say that it is worse. But as we've seen through the scripture and as we've seen in our own lives, false teaching doesn't announce itself. It would be way better for us if someone came into our church who was a false teacher who said, hey, guys, I'm just warning you, I'm a false teacher. I'm going to teach everything that goes against what scripture says. That would be easy. But it wasn't easy for Jude, it's not easy for us, it's more sinister to that, than that. Jude wouldn't have to write these things if false teaching were not a problem. But Christians were and are being led into teaching that stands against God's word. And these type of statements, he, he starts in verse 11, he says, woe to them. This is a statement that resembles a lot of what we see in the Old Testament, isn't it? These, these pronouncements, these, hey, hey, you are in trouble. Woe to you. Jesus spoke this way. The Apostle Paul was tough. This would have been understood by the people Jude was writing to. And to illustrate his warning, Jude gives the name of three people that we know from the Old Testament. First, he talks about Cain. He says this, that false teachers have walked in the way of Cain. Do you remember what Cain did? The first two brothers, Cain and Abel, were called to bring a sacrifice to God. And what happened? God accepted Abel's but rejected Cain. And so what Cain did was he went out and killed Abel. He was jealous, envious. And Judas saying that false teachers have the exact same spirit that was alive in Cain. Probably not responsible for anybody's death. But they carried the same spirit. They are envious, hateful, murderous. In their hearts. I say this often. The Christian faith, I think in large part, a healthy faith involves three things. Head, heart, and hands. So our head, we, we need to study the Bible. We need to study doctrine. We need to know theology. We need to know about God. Why he does what he does. We need to know these things. We also need to love God. I think this is probably the easiest of all three. We need to love him with our heart. We need to have a, a, an emotional attachment to God. We need to have an affection for God and what he's given for us. And we need to have hands to work, to do things for the Lord. Now I'm bringing this up because a person who does not have all three is at best stunting their growth. The false teachers Jude is calling out have knowledge of God. We, we know that. 
that they, they, they knew the Bible, they knew stuff about God, they knew doctrine, they knew theology, they knew all of those big terms. And so people followed. People appreciated their knowledge, whatever that they had and their ability to share that knowledge. They were charismatic. But what Jude is saying is their hearts were defiled and wicked. And so the next question that I have to ask myself, and, and you do as well, is how do we know someone's heart? How do we know well, the outward appearance looks good, it sounds okay. How do we know someone's heart? Well, you can't know it sitting across the, the aisle from someone. You can't know it by shaking hands Sunday morning. You can't know it by sitting next to someone in a classroom. You, you can't know it by saying good morning in the parking lot or next to the, the elevator or next to the restrooms. You, you can't know these things in a few seconds. So how do we know these? Relationships and discipleship. A person's true self comes out when you are around them often. When they drop their guard. Uh, you can't see that in just a few minutes each week. You can only know that when you really know someone. And this is hard for us. And this all stems back to false teaching. I'll get to that in a second. But you, we live in different cities. We live in different neighborhoods. We, we attend different schools. We shop at different grocery stores. We run in different circles. And so it's really difficult for us to know each other. Well, in the early church, this wasn't a difficulty. The early church ate together. They met daily. They went together to the temple to evangelize, to share the gospel. They huddled around each other when the authorities were coming to take them away. These people knew each other. They saw each other at their lowest. And we've lost that. And because of that, we've lost some of the closeness. We struggle to really know someone's heart. When something comes out in a church, uh, sometimes we say, well, I never saw that happen. Never saw that coming. Now we... We need to really know someone and know their heart as a protection against false teaching. You say, what does that mean? You know someone, when you spend time with someone, when you're with someone often, those things come out, those, those heretical views or those nearly heretical views or those dangerous views or those things that are kind of treading in that direction. You see those, they come out and so we can stop those at the root. The second example that Jude gives is Balaam. Jude says this, false teachers abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Here Jude says that false teachers do what they do because of greed. Now you, remember, you may remember Balaam uh, in Numbers chapter 22 when his donkey started talking to him. It's a wild passage. Um, I would love to talk about that one day because just the image of a donkey saying, why are you hitting me, is fantastic. Um, would love to have been there. But in what Jude is writing, Jude is saying that Balaam's motives were wrong. He's not even talking about the donkey. Balaam was supposed to speak for Israel, uh, to Israel for God, and instead he decided to curse them. He was hired by Balak to put a curse on the Israelites. For Balaam, money was more important than the people or following after God. Now, we know, you flip on a TV channel that's labeled Christian, and what are they talking about? How often do you see them presenting the gospel? 
How often do you see them preaching through difficult passages? No. How often do you see them talking about money? Plant the seed. What I've never understood is how someone worth $100 million, if he says that God's going to bless it by seven, why doesn't he just give that $100 million away and get $7 million in return? Because it doesn't work. It's false teaching. You can't worship God and money at the same time. So Jude is saying this is what's happening with false teachers. The third example he gives is Korah's rebellion. And he's referring to teachers and leaders in the church. Korah rebelled against the leadership of Moses and Aaron, refusing to recognize that God had placed them in authority over his life. And he's last on this list to serve as a warning to false teachers that they will suffer terrible judgment from God. Korah and his followers were swallowed up by the earth. And a similar future is promised to those who seek to do the church harm. These three examples from the Old Testament show that false teachers were full of envy, greed, and rejection of God's authority. Notice the pattern. They walked away, they abandoned, they perished. This is the pattern of false teachers. And Jude continues his condemnation of false teachers in verses 12 and 13. He gives a description of what these people do by their nature. There's five things that they describe, and, and these, this passage has lists, but it continues to get more and more serious as we go along. First, Jude says that these are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. False teachers only care about themselves. They may put on a show like a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. They, they may put on a show that looks normal, that looks like a believer, but again, inwardly their hearts are wicked. Jude talks about a boat here. He says there's hidden reefs. Boats today, if you get a, a good one, not a boat, if you just get a, put a boat, you're not going to have this, but if you have a, a ship or, a, or a, a, a yacht or something like that, you've got a whole panel of instruments that tells you everything you want to know. It tells you wind speed, how deep the, the water goes. It tells you where the channels are to go into port. It tells you the weather that's coming up. It has all those instruments to warn you against shipwreck. For Jude, those weren't around. A hidden reef could tear a ship apart. And sailors and captains knew where those reefs were only because they saw the wreckage from the other ships close by. They watched and they saw, but even in a yacht, even in a, a, a uh, Jeff Bezos ocean liner, even in all of that, those instruments are worth nothing if you don't pay attention to them. You can hear alarms going off. The buzzers can be going off. You can see that you're about to crash, but if you don't pay attention and don't do something about those warnings, those warnings are worthless. During these love feasts, Christians would share a meal together and take part in communion. And sitting with someone for a few hours can tell you a lot about a person. It's a great way to learn. But false teachers were not interested in getting to know someone. They weren't interested in the spiritual growth of those at the table. They were dangerous people sitting at those tables pretending to be part of the family. They were only focused on themselves. They were about to shipwreck the faith of those around them. They were shipwrecking the church. The second example Jude gives is one of waterless 
clouds. He says the false teachers are waterless clouds swept away, swept along by the winds. Now, if you've ever farmed, you'll find some critique of me in this, but I'm not a farmer, so I'm giving you the best example that I can. You're ready to... To, to, to farm your field and, and, and you need rain. You're, you're, you've planted, you've done everything that you could, but the ground has been dry. It hasn't rained for weeks. And as you're preparing uh, for this rain, you look up and you see these clouds coming and they're dark clouds. They're the, the most beautiful clouds when we need rain, when our grass is brown, when our bushes are dying. When we see those rain clouds come, it's beautiful. And so you look up and you see them and they're coming right at you. There, there's no doubt that you're about to get the rain that you need. And then as you're watching, the clouds just go overhead and not a drop falls. That cloud did nothing for you. It looked good. It, it seemed like it was about to bring a blessing. And then when it came, nothing happened. This is what Jude says false teachers do. They are waterless clouds. They look great. They promise great things. And then they just blow away. They're good for nothing. The third example that Jude gives is a fruitless tree in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Again, I'm no farmer. But I know that if you have a plant or a tree or crops and they produce nothing, they've done you no good. And most likely, if something produces nothing, whatever it is, it's dead. We planted bushes in our backyard um, last year. And uh, they all look like they were dead in the winter. And now most of them have sprouted up. Most of them have provided color. They're green. They've got all sorts of colors. I've got a nice dogwood that has, has these white uh, flowers popping out of them. It's beautiful. But then my favorite two little orange bushes have done nothing yet. These poor little things are gone. They're good for nothing at this point. They're just twigs sticking out of the dirt. They, they have accomplished nothing. The, it is past the time for them to bloom, and they have not yet bloomed. They'll be uprooted, and I'll plant something else in its place. They're worth nothing. This is what Jude says about false teachers, that they are producing nothing. We see this in other books of the Bible in the New Testament where it says, faith without works is dead. And we see this idea of a tree. If an apple tree produces no apples and it produces nothing, that tree is worthless. It's not good. It's dead. And Jude says this is where false teaching leads. To plants that produce nothing. The fourth example is another one from the sea. He says that these false teachers are like wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. You can see this. Imagine a nice British coastal town, small town, and the waves beat the beach, and it's, they're coming after one after another, over and over, and all it's sending up is foam. You've seen pictures of that. It's algae that collects. Most of you like to go to the beach, but I've never heard one person say, I cannot wait to go to the beach on our vacation and sit there and look at a bunch of foam algae sitting on the beach. Nobody wants that. It's messy. It's slimy. No one wants to touch it. It's not pretty to look at. It takes away your space. No one wants that. And that's what false teachers do. They pound and pound and pound and all they leave is slime and waste. Anyone who cares about the church and the gospel would never do this. 
The last example Jude gives is a wandering star. He writes, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It's like a falling star. They're here for a second and then gone. I've been blessed in ministry to not have to deal with many outright false teachers. I've had a few. But many of my friends in ministry have had a lot to deal with. Where people come in, they try to build their own kingdom. They create their own following and then they leave when things get too difficult. It's the same story over and over and they leave a mess behind. Ultimately, false teachers are shipwrecked, dry, barren, dirty, and aimless. And they leave churches the way they leave. They care more about themselves than they do the work of God. And so every church, this is Jude's writing to Christians, he's writing to churches, he's given them a warning. And so we must ask ourselves, what do we do to protect ourselves from this? I don't want to live scared. I don't want to live in fear. I'm not looking for, for bad guys lurking behind every corner. I'm not talking about that, but I'm saying that we need to be vigilant. And so what has God given us to be vigilant? Well, first, God gives protection through the church. Every person, including leadership, is capable of falling into this. Each one of us is capable of falling into bad leader or bad doctrine. So the church puts up safeguards. The, the church here, we have elders who are co-equal. I'm, I'm, I have no more vote than the other guys do. That protects the church from me. That there are other men in this church who love you and love this body who will say, Ryan, no. Or Ryan, go. This is a, a God gift that he's given to us. A church should never, should always pray. I take that back. The church should always pray that we never have to excommunicate someone or discipline members, but we must be willing to do it if necessary. Every time we do it, um, I hate it, but I'm confident that I'm following or that we're following after the word of God. And when this has happened, we've been asked, I've been asked, why is this necessary? I've been asked this too. After all, isn't the church supposed to be welcoming? And isn't the least welcoming thing you can do is to tell someone to leave? I mean, on the surface, that's what it sounds like, doesn't it? That, that if we had someone who was teaching something wrong, that the nice thing to do would be to kind of say, hey, would you please leave and go quietly? But no, the Bible says we do it publicly. And this would be a fair question if we were a club or if we were some other uh, a group or a charity, but we are a church. We are the called out ones who stand as the bride of Christ. So we follow the word of God so that we can be holy and blameless and above reproach. That's our goal. But going even deeper, why would God demand this of us? This seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? We want to grow a church. We want people to come. We want people to hear the word and join with us in fellowship. But we're ushering people out. Why does God tell us to remove these false teachers from our midst? It may seem vengeful and mean until we recognize the purpose of this. In Matthew 18, Jesus gives us the command that if sin is known, if sin is public, or if there's a sin that one person has against another, you approach them one-on-one. -on -one. This is a good pattern to follow. And if that person who is in sin doesn't listen, you take someone else with you. And then if that person still doesn't listen, you take them before the whole church. And at each step, the hope is that that person who is in 
public, gross, unrepentant sin would come to see the seriousness of what they're doing and come back to the Lord and come back to the church. And Jesus says this after giving us these instructions. Jesus says, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. See, the people who heard Jesus would have understood what a Gentile meant. It means someone outside of the family of God. To a Jew, hearing that someone was to be treated as a Gentile means you are outside of that family. You are no longer belonging to God. You're lost. You're gone. You no longer have that security that God provides. Church discipline and excommunication are not just ways to remove troublemakers. It's hopefully to bring sinners back to repentance. It's about reconciliation. Those who are truly believers will see the call, will see the severity of their sin, and will run back to Jesus. And will be welcomed with open arms in the church. Those who don't show that the gospel never resided in them. This is a warning to all people about the dangers of sin. And this is what Jude's book is. It's a warning. For false teachers, sin is what they do. And the fires of hell await them. The process that Jesus gives contains warning after warning about straying away from God's standard. And this is what we see in verses 14 through 16. God's judgment is certain. The church's response to false teachers is only a hint, a taste of what God will do. The church protects itself from infestation and at the same time pleads with false teachers to stop and come to Jesus for repentance and faith. But we know that false teachers don't do that. They've replaced God and put themselves in that. They are more concerned with what they can get rather than what they can give. A false teacher doesn't repent because their heart has been given over to a false gospel. This is what Jude says here. He's quoting again from a book that's not in the Bible. We've seen this before. He's quoting from a, a book that's not part of the Bible, but still worthy of, of discussion. And it still contains truth. All truth is God's truth. And he quotes this book, uh, and he says this. He says, look what Enoch prophesied. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Being called ungodly and having it repeated over and over is not pleasant, is it? It's putting an emphasis on what Jude is saying. This is the reality that false prophets will face the judgment of God. One commentator put it this way. At this coming, the return of Christ, things will be radically different from his first visit to earth. Here he comes to a crown, not a cross. He comes to a throne, not a cradle. He comes to reign, not to die. He comes to judge, not to be judged. The next time he comes will be the last time he comes, and angels will be both his escort and his agents of judgment. God does not mess around with people who mess around with his church. I want to confess something to you this morning. I can be harsh when talking about the church. Not just this church, but local churches in general. I can be harsh sometimes when I'm talking about doctrine and truth and theology, and it can come across as tough. 
It's not something that I apologize for, though. We may disagree with what happens when we gather or the direction that a church goes, but I hope that you can always say about me, and if there's one thing, there's a lot of things you can say about me, some I don't want you to say, but there's a lot of things that you can say about me, but I hope the one thing that rises above all else is he loves God and he values the church. If I can't do that, I'm not worthy to stand before you every week. But that can come across as harsh. There's an intensity about it. I'm intense about the local church, the purpose of us gathering together, the purpose of us uniting together. I'm serious about this stuff. And that's okay. Read what Jesus said. He was harsh. Paul was harsh. The church fathers could be harsh. The reformers were often harsh. That's okay because I care more about the truth of God than I do about making people feel comfortable and good. You do not need, listen, you do not need a motivational speech every week. You do not need to be told how great you are. You do not need to be told how to have a better marriage in five easy steps. You do not need any of that. You do not need to be told that you can be anything you want to be. You don't need any of those things because none of those things pull you away from the judgment of God. Those things don't remind you of the glorious grace that's found only in Christ. That's what we need. Those things don't satisfy. They can't satisfy. Dealing with truth inevitably brings charges of intellectual snobbery and harshness. I'm okay with that. Not an intellectual, but you can call me that. That's fine. My job is not to please you as much as it is to point you to Jesus. This requires doctrine and truth, and it requires us to call out those who are leading people to hell. It requires discernment, and that can be harsh. But think for a moment. What other option is there? The other option is what Jude talked about. It's godlessness. There is no middle ground. There is no yeah, but it is either following after the word of the Lord or being godless. Those are the two paths. We have no other choices. And again, Jude, in his way, he gives us a list. Four descriptors of godlessness. Now, now hear these. The first one is that they are grumblers and malcontents. It's one of my favorite words, malcontent. They complain. False teachers will complain about those who are faithfully teaching the word of God. They're critical like Israel was in the wilderness. They're not satisfied with the ways of God, so they complain about it. The second descriptor is that they are followers of their own sinful desires. This likely, based on what we've seen so far in Jude, it likely means greed and sexual sin. God has forgiven us, so we're free to go do whatever we want. Going back to their old ways. The third descriptor of godlessness is that people are loud-mouthed boasters. The Greek could be translated as someone who speaks arrogant things. And the final descriptor Jude gives, that the people are flatterers of the worst kind. They're, we preach expository preaching. We take a passage or a book of the Bible and we go through it. We expose what the Bible says. We explain it. We do our best to, to say, this is what God says to you. And one of the criticisms of that um, is that it could be more academic or it could be more teaching than preaching. 
And so to that, my only response is, what do you want me to do, stand up here 30 minutes and tell you stories about my childhood? Or would you rather me show you how great Jesus is? Most false teachers are gifted in talking about themselves. They're gifted in drawing people to them. It's their charismatic personalities that people follow. They don't preach the word. They preach themselves. They trick people into thinking that they actually care about them. But in reality, all they care about is themselves. Now, the harshness of Jude's words are important because it reminds us that God is in control. And that judgment is promised to those who lead people astray. So in closing, I want to leave you with two thoughts slash challenges here. First, guard the church. I said it before, I'll keep saying it over and over and over again. Guard the church against false doctrine. Guard the church against false teachers. You smell a hint of that, deal with it. This church and every local church matters we are the bride of Christ. We are the primary means of evangelism in the world today. We are the ones who send out missionaries, who plant churches. The churches are essential for the work of God. Protect it. You are guarding the bride of Christ. Second, building on the first, remember this, you will never be perfectly faithful. In your life, you will sin, and you will do it often. In your ministry here, you and I will fail to always guard the church. There is no doubt, no doubt in my mind, that every church is going to deal with this at some point, where someone will come in and try to challenge doctrinal, acceptable doctrine that the church has brought. And we will fail. What happens then? There will be times when it's too late to stop it from happening. In both your life and your ministry, remember that Jesus does what we cannot do. Jesus is faithful even when we're not. Jesus entrusted the church to his followers knowing that his followers would fail. There will be times when the shepherds fall asleep. There will be a time when we forget to lock the gate. There will be times when we do not care for the sheep like we should. But we always point to Jesus, the shepherd who never fails us, the shepherd who always protects us, the shepherd who always does what is needed. We lean on the truth that Jesus is far better than our failings. And we know, we look forward to that day when Jesus returns to make all things right. The day that we will not have to worry about false teachers coming in. The day that we will entirely focus ourselves on worshiping the king. It's not here yet, but we wait for that day. There will come a day when we can let up our guard. We wait for it, but it's not here. But yet we still work because it's worth it. We still guard the truth because the truth is all that we have.